This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. We've not been called to make the world a better place, but to be the better place that God has made in this world through Christ. Hi, I'm Carl, and I'm a small church pastor, and welcome to this episode of Can This Work in a Small Church? My guest today is John C. Nugent. He's the author of several books, including the book we'll be talking about today, Endangered Gospel, How Fixing the World is Killing Church. Yeah, that's a provocative title, and it's an important subject. Dr. Nugent is also a professor of Old Testament studies at Great Lakes Christian College. He's the co-host of the After Class podcast, and he's a member of a vital and thriving small congregation. In this episode, we'll be talking about the root of some of the biggest challenges pastors are facing today, starting with, has the church been called to separate ourselves from the world, to change the world, to fix the world, or something else entirely? John's approach is biblically sound, it's practical, it's very engaging, and it's going to bring us a lot of help for the challenges that we're facing right now. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and an answer to the question, can this work in a small church? Well, welcome, John, to the podcast today. I sure appreciate your your time with us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You got it. I, I received your book, Endangered Gospel, from someone at a conference I was speaking at, and it's not unusual to go to a conference and have people hand me their books or books that a friend of theirs wrote. Mm-hmm. I always appreciate it. I always at least scan those books. But to be honest, I've stopped expecting too much from them because <laughs> uh, it's, you know, here's a book my friend wrote and you look at it. And again, I always do. I always appreciate it. and I always look through them. It took sure. me a while. I got yours during a busy season. So it went on the shelf and it took me a while, maybe a year or two to finally open it up and crack it. But of course, you know, pandemic and lockdowns gave me a lot of reading time. Mm-hmm. So when I did grab your book, Endangered Gospel, How Fixing the World is Killing the Church, it grabbed my attention immediately and it never let it go. I've got the thing here. It is tagged like crazy and we'll be going to a bunch of those tags through this interview today, but I really, really appreciated uh, what you had to say in there. So it is, first of all, it's a provocative title, how fixing the world is killing the church. So I thought, okay, I want to at least hear what the title is about and you get right to it right up. So I'm going to set the table for for the book for everybody, because this is a book that we could, you know, speak for hours about, and we're just not going to because, well, we'll tease them and then they'll get to read the book for themselves. (laughs) But you start with talking about there's a a common perception out there. As you say, the ability to shape culture is concentrated in elite institutions. And that this, this overlap of elite institutions is where the power comes from. And when you take a look at it, in the world, you kind of go, it's, that seems to be right. You actually use a particular author to outline those views who I won't mention. You're free to mention. I just don't want, he's not the issue. And you, in fact, congratulate him that his book is good in many, many ways, but you look at it. So you started out with, Hey, that seems right. And then immediately you go, the problem is that doesn't sound biblical. (laughs) (laughs) And then you say this, if we're not careful, we may gain the world and lose the church. And then ultimately we'll lose the world too. When Christians begin substituting activism for discipleship, it's not the world that becomes endangered, but the gospel. And then you flip the page and go to the first sentence of chapter two, where you say this, let me be as straightforward and clear as possible. It's not the church's job to make this world a better place. Now you got to explain yourself. (laughs) All right. You drop a power bomb right there, right off the top. I profoundly agree but I know a lot of people are going to hear that and go, wait a minute. So let's talk about that right to begin with. What is, what is that all about? Yeah. So you know, my passion is biblical studies, and uh, especially as it pertains to the church's nature and mission. 
I fell in love with the church, with the study of the church, precisely by studying the Old Testament. And the more I studied the Old Testament and, and got my mind wrapped around the Bible story and what the Bible story is about, what God is doing through his people, what he has set them apart to do, the more and more I realized that you know, there's strikingly little evidence in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God's people understood their role and their function as to kind of be God's agents of going throughout the world fixing what's broken about the world. And so, you know, you look at Torah, the right. center of, of Israel's scriptures, there's no passage about going to the Edomites and the Moabites and the, the uh, Egyptians or Babylonians or Hittites or Syrians and like find out what's wrong with them, help them fix it. Rather, you have this intense focus on God's people ordering their lives according to God's vision for human thriving and that God would use their reordered life to be a blessing to the nations, to draw all people to himself. So, right. it's, so it's the church's dynamic life ordered according to God's original designs, which has this magnetic force that attracts people to God himself. Yeah. And yeah. that seems to be the direction of things in the Old Testament. And just the entire absence of going out, fixing things, making things better, being God's stewards of the world, taking care of it because the world doesn't do a very good job, and we're going to show them how it's done. Yeah, it's a challenging multi-layered uh, concept, and there's overlap in almost every statement between, well, that sounds good, that sounds right, but maybe it's not biblical and trying to understand and sort out the wheat from the chaff, if you will, when they're so combined. Again, almost every statement you hear is like, there's something about that that feels right, looks right, but maybe it doesn't feel right, maybe it doesn't look right. And what you do so well is, I think, separate the wheat from the chaff really well. You begin by saying that the, the church has approached making the world a better place in a whole lot of different ways, but you have designated four specific categories about that, that give four basic big picture ways that we have typically tried to make the world a better place. Can you, first of all, just tell us what those four categories are one at one after another, and then let's take a look at them one at a time, because this is really the essence of how your book is framed and how you separate the wheat from the chaff for us so well in the book. Yeah. And I really outlined four different approaches to a better place. And the first one is the heaven centered. Mm -hmm. And that is that and that's not actually a view that that is connected to making this world a better place. It's really the notion that God's judgment is, is upon this world and his the salvation he offers us is that to get right with him through Jesus so that we can leave this world and go to a better place in heaven. And, and so right. that the world is kind of left behind. The better place is not now. It's after you die and it's not here. It's up in heaven. And so that's right. the heaven centered view. The human-centered view recognizes, you know, the theme that really spans the scriptures that God's saving purposes for this, for his creation include not just saving souls and people from sin, but also restoring his creation. And so there's lots of future hope about a new Jerusalem and the lion with the lamb and, and trees bearing multiple fruit. And, and, you know, from Romans eight, the creation is groaning for its restoration. And so the human center view says, it's not just about getting people right with God for the afterlife. God cares about this world. Only the human center view believes that this world is going to become a better place because we make it that way. Like God's people will like, follow God's vision shared by Jesus, and we will use that vision to fix the world. And, and so the, our fundamental mission is to follow God's instructions given by Jesus to make the world a better place. And it's up to us basically to do it. It sounds like the Nike theology. It's just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's in our hands. We are empowered to make this change. We have the authority kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. And there's a kind of optimism to this view yeah. of, of the yeah. human ability to like through technology and, and advancements and philosophical development and that we're going to get better and better and better. And we're going to fix this thing. So that's the human centered view. So we have centered, human centered. And then the next one is the world centered view, right. which is becoming, I would say, the most popular among evangelicals yeah. and, and mainline denominations. And it kind of agrees with the world centered view that God cares for all creation. He's not just going to abandon the world and take us all to heaven, but he's going to, he, he wants to remake this world. And they believe that, that Jesus has given us a kingdom vision of what that remade world looks like. 
and that we have a responsibility to start making the world into that vision, kind of like the human center view, only they would emphasize that we're not good enough to pull that off. Like God's going to have to return with the second coming of Jesus and kind of finish the work that we start. And, and so there's a little less optimism for the church or anyone else making this world the better place. Uh, God's going to finish it with Christ when Christ returns. However, how we participate in that remaking is to start the process now the best that we can. And so we're still like the human center focus as much as we can on making the world a better place, but we're not confident that we're going to finish it, that God's going to have to do that. So that's the right. world center view. And then the fourth one is, and the fourth one is the one I recommend. And, and I right. don't come out right away with the fourth one. Right. Uh, after setting those three out there, I kind of say, let's see which approach to the Bible story best fits with the whole narrative of scripture. And so I, I walk through the narrative of scripture from Old Testament to new highlighting and really just paying attention to what is the role of God's people in God's plan and, and, and what view jumps off the page. And, and that journey led me to what I call a kingdom-centered approach. And that is, it's an agreement with the world-centered view that God wants to remake this world and, and it's not going to happen until Christ returns. Like that's when the world will become perfect. <laughs> that's when the resurrection happens. That's when uh, his purposes for creation reach their, their climax and their fulfillment. However, where it differs is that it has the real conviction that in a real sense, the new world that God is making that he promised through the prophets has already begun through Jesus, such that we live now in a time where there's the old world that is passing away. The old order and the old structures of oppression and dominance in this world are still very much in force, in action, in world history. And yet with the kingdom announcement of Jesus and the beginning of the kingdom people, the messianic people of God, the pouring out of the spirit, the new humanity uh, that the church is called in Ephesians, the new creation that we're called in uh, second Corinthians, that the new world is already begun breaking in, in right. the midst of the old world that is passing away. And ultimately it's this new world that has begun with the kingdom community started by Jesus that will eclipse the world that's passing away and be the thing that God folds into the full kingdom, the full restored creation when Christ returns. And so the big, the big difference really in the kingdom centered view, and, and this is why it's called endangered gospel. It's that we're not waiting for God to make the world a better place. The good news is that through Jesus, through his work, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, a new world has already begun. And God right. invites us to participate in that new world now. And it's our current experience and witness to that new kingdom reality that is that magnet that God is using to draw all people to himself. Yeah, I love the, the categorizations that you use here, because each of the four, if you just hear it isolated from the others, has big parts of it that you look at and go, well, yeah, that's right. Like heaven-centered, God's kingdom isn't here, not yet. We're going to show them how to get to heaven. Well, there's a part of that where I go, yeah, that kind of feels right. I've been taught that. I've, we, mm -hmm. yeah, we want to get yeah. people to go to heaven. And secondly, human-centered. We're good people when we and we we live in a broken world and we want to help to heal the hurting and we want to you know we want to fix things up. There's a part of that that we go, yeah. And then the world-centered of we really aren't strong enough to do that. And you know, God, we need to you know be ready for God's kingdom to break through. You even call this a good view, but not the best view. But it's only when the four of them are really juxtaposed to each other that we see the elevation of the kingdom view, which is really the biblical pattern that is so important here, that it is not about us making things better. It's not just about us getting on a train and going to heaven and leaving everything else behind. It is a very different thing. I love how you've mentioned it already, but let's lean into this a little bit. I love how you talk about how important it is that the entire Bible story, we need to understand everything in light of the entire Bible story. Just a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon at my church talking about the story arc of the Bible, and I, I walked everybody through, and I used the overly simplified inverse bell curve of, you know, almost every story out there basically has this inverse bell curve of good, bad, better. You know, something <laughs> yes. starts well, something goes bad, it gets fixed up, and it's made better. 
And we typically look at our own life story arc and we ask God to fit in to help make it better. Mm-hmm. But what I described to our congregation was, no, God's got this story arc that he is telling where yes. he created a good world, where it got bad and continues to get bad. And where because of the arrival of Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection, what we know as the, as the gospel, that has made and continues to make all things better until ultimately the kingdom, God does his work of the kingdom in this world. And our story we get to play our part in God's overall meta story arc of what yes. he is doing through the salvation of all of creation, starting with, you know, most importantly, those of us made in his image. But your, your approach, which I believe is a biblical approach, is not human-centered, it's God-centered. And That's it right. doesn't start with trying to describe correct theology, but trying to understand the biblical story arc. Do I have that accurately? And if so, why is that understanding of the entire biblical story so essential to us breaking through to a more biblical understanding of this whole subject? I think you have it exactly right. And and I think why it's right is perhaps evident when you look at the biblical evidence for the other views. You know, you can find passages, you know, in the New Testament about Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and the kingdom of heaven is like and I'm going to a place and I'm preparing it and you're going to be with me later. And from a few verses, you can get the heaven center view. Absolutely. Or, you know, you can get to a few passages in the prophets that are decrying social injustice and broken societal structures. And the prophets are railing for change and to bring down the fallen power structures and replace them with more godly structures. And, and you can, con- you know, construct from those passages that are kind of like the human centered view, right? Right. Each of the positions, because they have some of the truth have compelled many people uh, to them. Uh, and, and what makes them all for, fall short is that not all of them equally kind of fit into the whole Bible story as a unit. Right, right. The kingdom-centered approach, you know, where God is creating a kingdom people whose life together is a foretaste of the kingdom to come and that that's God's magnetic way of drawing all people to himself. That's exactly what he's doing in Torah with Israel. It's exactly what the prophets fault the Israelites for not doing. And it's exactly the shape of the hope of the prophets when they talk about Jerusalem being elevated and all nations streaming to Jerusalem and getting a hold of a Jew and say, can I go with you? You know, this attractional magnetic approach, you know, and and it's exactly what Jesus picks up with in the Sermon on the Mount. You're a city on the hill. You're a light of the world. And yet at the same time, you're like this scattered salt (laughs) that I'm going to send throughout the world. So there's an approach that you can see is in continuity with the whole Bible story. Yeah. And there's approaches that you can construct from bits and pieces of the Bible story, but that you really have to look hard to find something like the Bible story is about dying and going to heaven. It's really hard to find any evidence for that in the entire Old Testament. Yeah. Or that it's our job to fix the world. It's really hard to find any evidence for that in the Old Testament. Yeah, you even mentioned that the Old Testament prophets, as many things as they criticized the ancient Hebrews for, they never criticized them for not making the world a better place. Yes. If if we're supposed to be making the world a better place, and there's all these books and all these pages of what you're doing wrong, shouldn't there be at least one mention of, hey, and by the way, you're not making the world a better place. (laughs) Yes. And and, And you can do the same thing with the New Testament letters. Yes, exactly. Yeah. What apostle has ever criticize a church for not cleaning up the streets of Rome. (laughs) Yeah. How how did Paul and Peter forget that? You know, (laughs) right. If that was supposed to be it. And so that silence is kind of deafening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it speaks loudly. And and so an approach that can incorporate the full scope of the canon, I think will be stronger. Yeah. You then say, and you say this multiple times, you come back and you say it and you rephrase it multiple times to reinforce it all the way throughout the book. The essence of it is this, we're not called to make the world better. We are called as the church to be the better place. Yeah. What does that mean? And what does that look like for the church, not to make the world better, but to be an example of the kingdom of God and be a better place? Yeah. And and let me clarify. And when I say that statement and that statement it really does epitomize it. We've not been called to make the world a better place, but to be the better place that God has made in this world through Christ. Right? That's right. kind of the full phrase. It's not like anything we do to make the world better is bad or right. wrong. I don't want to discourage anyone who has a ministry of feeding um, the homeless, of you know providing 
stable housing for those who need, like, these are good and important ministries. And I believe they can be a part of God's kingdom mission properly positioned within that mission. What I push back in is making that the mission. Like that's why we exist is to fix the broken structures of this world. That is as important as that work is. And as much as we can envelop that work in God's kingdom work in, in very strategic ways, the Bible story is about the work that God did in Jesus, that he right. came proclaiming the kingdom. He is the Messiah. He inaugurated the new age in world history that the prophets have been longing to. And this has created a new humanity, a new creation, a new kingdom reality that God invites us all to be a part of. And he invites us to join him in welcoming the whole world to be a part of that kingdom reality. And so people get really fired up about doing concrete things that fix things in the world. And I believe that those can be an important contact points with culture, serving them in very contact personal ways gives us a platform to tell them about this greater kingdom reality. Jesus' life and ministry, of course, is a great example of that. He fed the hungry. He healed the broken. He did all of those acts of mercy, but he didn't come in order to set up a food distribution system. He didn't come in order to set up a healing system. He said, I came to seek and to save those who were lost. Yes. And a part of doing that, it necessarily involves when the kingdom of God breaks out through Jesus himself in the gospels and through the body of Christ, his church today, that will of necessity involve lifting up the broken, elevating the hurting, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, housing the, the homeless. That will necessarily involve that, but it is a corollary to and the main principle of establishing and being example of Christ's kingdom on earth to seek and to save those who are lost. And again, if I'm mis phrasing any of your phrasing of that, please uh, make a correction of that, or at least uh, help me to go a little deeper on that. But that's what it feels like to me is what you're saying sounds like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, his, his end goal is that this earth will be filled with kingdom communities that are bearing witness to his kingdom in every city and every corner of the globe, right? That's his yeah. goal. That's his mission yeah. to fill the world with kingdom communities, communities who embrace God's kingdom display it in their life together and proclaim God's offer to everyone because God's kingdom experience is for the whole world. So the dangerous thing, how we, how fixing the world is killing the church is when we, we get addicted to or attached to or enamored with concrete ways of fixing the world that then become ends in and of themselves disconnected from God's mission of filling this world with communities that bear witness to his kingdom. And, and so you can do acts of public service, feed the poor and, uh, you know, house the homeless. And that can be a part of welcoming them into a Christian community that they can have relationship with and they can have fellowship with, and they can break bread with as a part of the community. We don't exist just to do things for them. We are a kingdom community that wants to welcome them into our kingdom life together, which means that they're going to be fed. They're going to be provided for. They're going to be clothed. And so finding ways to bridge our acts of service in the community to the kingdom mission of filling this world with kingdom communities, that's the missing element that's killing the church. Yeah. Yeah, All sorts of missions that exist just to fix the concrete need. And, And they may even proclaim the gospel, even have classes but there's no, there's no church involved. There's no right. church connection. There's no community that people are being enfolded into or welcomed into or invited into. The concrete service is provided and you know Jesus' name is talked about, uh, but the kingdom community is not experienced firsthand. Yeah, and and exactly. some people, I cited a book in my book from Reggie McNeil called Kingdom Come, where he just talks about, you know, wherever a hungry person is fed, the kingdom of God is at hand. Whenever someone naked is clothed, the kingdom of God is breaking in. And, and so he equates the fruit of service that makes the world better as the kingdom itself coming. And, and that's a deeply unbiblical connection. Yeah. The kingdom project has always been the people of God ordering their life together in accordance with God's ultimate will for creation as an example for the rest of the world. That's where the kingdom is visible. Yeah. Yeah. And now a short break to talk about something else. 
If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. All right, you're wading into areas that at this now are going to be controversial. So I'm going to I'm going to pull out a couple other because there were a couple of spots in your book when I went, wow, he's going to some dangerous places here. Uh, <laughs> yes, like f- fairly early in the book, page 49, I believe it is. You you talk about how the kingdom of God is intentionally set up, and I will try attempt to phrase it correctly, and you correct me if I don't do it right that the whole church and state thing as as kind of a foundation for this argument that you in fact state that the kingdom of god is set up so that yes in fact we are not just simply to have just the church doing all these things or just the state doing all these things or whatever other power structures you want to bring into the mix but that in fact god has designed it in a way where there's a multiplicity of powers that are designed all together to meet a variety of needs that are at place in the world i may have even misstated that simply because that is such an outside the box way of thinking about it. But as I read it through, I go, he's onto something here. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, and here, when people talk about the kingdom, they often think of wherever God is at work, we join him. And then that makes it kingdom work. And what people fail to distinguish, which to me is kind of basic to the Bible story, is that God is at work in this world with more than just the church. <laughs> God is at work in this world using uh, nations and powers and principalities, right, to keep order in his world. Like God is in charge of the whole world. And he, you know, since Babel, he's scattered people throughout the earth and they've settled into these different nations. And God uses the rulers and authorities to keep peace in those various territories, right? So you think of Romans 12 about the governing authority has power. And, and is the servant of God to punish right. the evil and to reward the good. And so, you know, God is at work in this world using world powers that are unbelieving powers that are fallen and broken. He's using them to keep chaos in check, to keep order and promote the peace so that there might be stability, so that nations are not constantly trampling over other nations, so that when one nation gets too big for its britches, other nations will kind of clamp down on that nation and like the Hitlers of the world, and you might say the Putins of the world, right? Like right. God cares about what's going on in Ukraine right now. He cares what's going on in every country. And he has these different nations and their rulers that he uses to suppress dictators and to limit their reigns. And so this is God's work in the world. He's using nations to, to make the world a better place. And his other work in this world is what he uses his set apart chosen people for Israel and now the church which is in a world where he uses nations to keep basic order, to make the fallen world as tolerable as possible. (laughs) But those powers, those rulers can never bring about a new world order, a utopia. They can't bring about the kingdom of God. They can only keep evil at check. Yet the separate role of his his set-apart people, the church, is to not keep the current world stable, but to make the new world visible. (laughs) Right. to make the kingdom that God has brought through Jesus visible in a broken and fallen world. So he has his work of preservation 
for which he uses world powers. And he has his work of redemption and of new kingdom life and community through which he uses the church. So it's not simply enough to say, where is God at work and join him if you want to be a good Christian? It's, well, if you've chosen to be a Christian, it's where is God at work in his work of redemption in making the kingdom visible and how can I join it? Yeah. Yeah. Because God's also at work outside of that mission using the powers to keep basic order. And really, God can use anyone to keep the nations in order. He can only use transformed, regenerated, spirit-empowered Christian communities to carry out his kingdom mandate. Yeah. For those of you who are listening to this, and it's maybe confusing to the way you've heard about how the church state and other authorities in the world relate to each other. What you do so well in the book is you go back and you show the the biblical story arc. You mentioned already Babel, you go back to creation, you deal with, uh, you you talk about the principalities and powers and what that means. And you, you lay it out in a way, you put bits and pieces together that I had never seen put together in a logical and biblical string that makes sense of all of this. So that outside the biblical story arc, it's really hard to understand this sharing of powers for lack of a better term that you've just talked about, but with inside the principle of scripture, and you see it laid out over and over and over again in scripture, simple things like pray for Kings and in their authority. And God has put these Kings in his place. And we look around, well, what about a Hitler? What about a Putin? But when you see it according to the biblical story arc and according to the way you have, I think, biblically described a kingdom centered orientation, only then does it really make sense. If you're going to keep any of the other three orientations none of these things make a whole lot of sense. They kind of fall to pieces. It's only with the kingdom-centered orientation that they, that really makes sense. And so for those who are listening, I really do encourage you to, if you want to do further reading on this, uh, get endangered gospel. It is strong. It is biblically sound. It is academically rigorous, but it is not, it's easy to read. The first few chapters, especially laying out the stuff that we're really talking about now, and then you get into the ways that the church can actually be an example of the kingdom of God, that we can actually embody that within a church structure how does a church actually begin to look that way which is just you know too much to get into in, in a <laughs> short thing like this but before we get into the last little bit which is you know kind of practical application in smaller congregations you do at the end of the book talk about two uh, pitfalls the pitfalls of isolationism and utopianism that is right now one of the big spark points for arguments that are happening within the body of Christ right mm -hmm. now. You've got the isolationists on one side, you've got the utopians on the other side. Uh, they tend to be categorized in political terms within the conversations online and so on as left and right. But I think it's way outside of those categories. It's bigger than those categories. Can you walk us through what, is, what are the pitfalls of isolationism, utopianism? How are they so dangerous and how do we overcome that? Yeah. So, you know, once people realize that it's our job, not necessarily to fix everything wrong with this world, that God's got other agents that he uses to do that, it's easy to get just so, okay, so, you know, our role is all about the church and building up the kingdom community and enjoying the kingdom as a community. And the danger is that that itself becomes an end in and of itself. From beginning to end, God is creating this alternative community so that he might use them to draw all people to himself. The church exists from beginning to end for the world <laughs> we right. exist for the world we don't exist for ourselves right uh, any experience of the kingdom and the spirit and the new and abundant life that god opens up for us is so that we might overflow in around us and impact our communities our neighbors our families that god might use our witness to draw all people to himself so you know one of the paradigm shifts people have usually when they're done reading the book is man i need to take my commitment to serving in the church and living out the kingdom together more seriously than I ever have. Yeah. And praise the Lord that they, they realize that, but they have, they cannot let go of. And the reason I do that is so that God might use us to reach our neighbors and the world. And so isolation would kill the whole thing, right? It would be to, you know, light a lamp and put it under a bushel. We exist for the world. Everything we do is for the world. And we have to keep that for the world orientation and, and find creative ways to make our experience of the kingdom visible to unbelievers. Right. And that's right. really the challenge for churches of every size. But especially, I think, smaller churches finding ways to serve each other and love each other in ways that our neighbors can see it and ask questions about it and be drawn to it and experience something 
that they don't experience among their family or their friends or their workplaces. Yeah. So isolation kills the whole thing. <laughs> We're for the world or not at all. Yeah. And I think that for those of us who, you know, mostly talking to church leaders who are aware, for instance, of Jesus uh, confrontations with the Pharisees, that's really where they were. They were in some ways, it's kind of hard to fault them because the last two last third of the old Testament is God screaming at the people quit combining your beliefs with these unbiblical beliefs with idolatry, quit all this syncretism that's going on. And they end up in Babylon because of that. And then by the time the new Testament opens, the Pharisees have established themselves basically say, okay, we're going to do that. Now we're going to keep ourselves separate. Like the prophets told us we should have back then. And we didn't learn the lesson back then. And the Jesus comes along and goes, no pendulum swing way too far over into isolationism. We got to be separate from the world for the world. We can't go into isolationism. And then utopianism, of course, would be maybe those first two views that we looked at earlier, right? The the human-centered view and the world-centered view. Would they be examples of utopianism, perhaps? A different kind of utopianism. The heaven-centered just relocates utopia to another place at another time. Yeah. World-centered and human-centered would be closer, though, would it? I think utopianism, as I talk about it as a pitfall to avoid, is a pitfall that the kingdom-centered approach must avoid. Like once we realize that this new thing God is doing through us, the sins are being forgiven, the walls are being broken down between male and female, between young and old, between black and white, there we can think that it's our job in the church community to engineer not the world to be utopia, but to engineer our own life to be utopia. Uh, right. And then gotcha. in such a way that doesn't take it's kind of like the kingdom is now but not yet. It's begun through Jesus, but it's not here fully. And if we don't take seriously the ongoing impact of sin, even within the kingdom community, uh, we can get into trouble. (laughs) Right. You know, there's neither male nor female in the kingdom, but uh, men and women in the church really need to have boundaries. Yeah. Right. The the kingdom hasn't come yet. There's still sin. There's still lust. Mm -hmm. And so I think people can take the ideal of the kingdom and, and latch onto it so much that they're not taking seriously the ongoing presence of sin, that we need to be careful yeah. that we don't enter into kind of uh, dangerous territory. Gotcha. No, I love that. Before we get to the lightning round questions, let's talk to uh, pastors, specifically pastors of smaller congregations. Are there some ways that you would maybe uh, talk to them or encourage them to start thinking about these principles within their local congregations in ways where we can become what we're talking about more kingdom centered within our congregations in some practical ways, because you give a lot of practical help in this. Are there a couple of keys that you might uh, highlight right now for our listeners? I have a chart somewhere, maybe it's in the appendix. I may list it inside of a chapter. I forget, but I have a, a mark of like 25 marks of a kingdom embodying church. And what I've done is I've called from the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom and the example of the new Testament churches, uh, according to the letters and this is what the kingdom is like. And, and I think the challenge for churches is what can we do now so that our congregational experience is more like that kingdom vision? And I think one of the places that I think we have the most learning to do and growing to do in large and small churches alike is in notions of power and authority and leadership. And one of the things about the kingdom is that the Holy Spirit has been given to all members. <laughs> They've all been blessed and empowered for ministry, and the Holy Spirit might say something through anyone in the church body. And and the leaders who've been nominated and recognized by the church don't corner the market on God's will and Mm -hmm. ideas for the thriving of the community. And so I think one of the challenges to make visible the voice and gift of every member, not to do the work of ministry on behalf of the saints, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I think finding ways to make the voice of each member heard, where they feel like what they believe matters and that their views are being taken seriously. Uh, There's so many aspects of the kingdom that are reflected when power is reframed in terms of Jesus and, and serving and prioritizing others and lifting them up. That's just an example of, you know, the, in yeah. the kingdom, we don't acknowledge any kind of discrimination based on race, based, based on ethnicity and, and age and things of that sort. But when it comes to people who are making decisions and are providing leadership and have a voice, they often tend to look like a very specific demographic. Yeah. And you know, where power is being hoarded in the hands of the few, 
the kingdom of the world is made more visible than the kingdom of God. Would you have any practical advice for pastors who are, I mean, the last few years especially has been a season of real division in, in a lot of churches over politics and things that are easily secondary, if not even less than secondary to the gospel. And so you've got a lot of pastors, especially in smaller churches and in smaller towns, are dealing with real division in their congregations. And a lot of the division comes from a misunderstanding of the biblical mandates, as you have outlined in this book. You've got isolationists, for instance, who are just, we've got to be completely separate from, or you've got those who are human-centered or at least world-centered. Well, the opening thing we talked about, we're going to grab the power structures of this world in the hands of the church. We've got to get into the power structures. We've got to be in the room where it happens to quote, you know, Hamilton, (laughs) right? And the church wants to be in the room where it happens. We want to be one of those power structures, which is how you start the book, which this sounds great, but it's not biblical. And a lot of pastors right now are struggling with a lot of congregation members who are coming from exactly that viewpoint. Is it even possible from your perspective uh, at a little bit of remove from the local pastorate, although you are very involved in your local church, of course, how can pastors begin to address these kinds of hard divisions that are happening in our congregations right now? Yeah. And and the first thing, I, I think you've outlined that nicely, is to realize that the gathering of the believing community is the room where it's happening. There we go. Right? We are the room where the future of world history is breaking forth. Washington is not that. City Hall is not that. Right? And so the challenge then, I think, and and we have people who they get worked up, they get fired up for social justice causes and issues because of social media, because of the news. I think uh, some churches, you know, respond to that by, all right, so, you know, we're going to go join the march or join the protest and we're going to be, you know, the social justice Twitter warriors and be in the room where that is happening. And others are like, no, that has nothing to do with Jesus. We're going to totally stay away from that stuff. Well, you know, the kingdom is a place where social justice is being overcome. And so the question is, why is it that people who have a heart for social justice don't feel like the church is a place where something's happening in that regard? Mm-hmm. And so the question is not what is our town doing to deal with racial inequity, but what concrete ways is our church breaking down walls racially? What ways are we showing support and care for those who've been chewed up and beaten up by the systems. There needs to be a sense in which the church, without the political and financial incentives of the world, but simply because of our loyalty to God and our desire to be a witness to his kingdom, that we have concrete initiatives going on as the people of God, uh, where people can kind of catch a glimpse of the kind of social equity that they're trying to make happen in the world, that they're seeing take place very visibly concretely among the church family so that so that after you know riots and stuff break out the church family is getting together and saying all right how can we be a witness to the kingdom when everyone is at each other's throats in the world right now how can we be a foretaste that that this this racial reconciliation they want to see is already taking place among us yeah. And so we, we need those people who are kind of world-centered in the sense that they have a heart for the brokenness of the world. We need them in our body. And we need the people who have a, you know, a passion about God's word and the scriptures and salvation and the message of Jesus. We need them in our bodies coming together to realize both of those things come together in our embodied witness as a community and the way we treat one another. Wonderful. Uh, So many different places we could go with this. I absolutely love your book, Endangered Gospel. I recommend it to anybody who wants further exploring on this, especially if you're in a congregation where these issues are really, you know, tearing the fabric of the church apart. And even if you're not, simply so we can do this better, we want to be a a kingdom-focused ministry. I really recommend that, but I can't let you go without subjecting you to the lightning round questions that everybody has got to be subjected to. So here's the question number one. What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes is just there is this restlessness about the social ills that are tearing apart our society and this desire we need to do something about it. Uh, That is a change. There's a level of passion and intensity about that, that people are willing to walk out of churches if they don't see something there. And so how, how we're adapting to that and striving to is to, instead of letting people just talk 
into their books and their different silos, social media silos, we're bringing people together in the church family to talk about what they see, what they're concerned about, and what concrete steps can we take as a congregation to make visible we care about these things too, because they're central to a kingdom vision. And we're listening to their voices and we're taking concrete steps and we're learning from the world. We're listening to some of the good things that are going on there. Yeah. There's an increased conflict, but it comes out of an increased passion. So uh, you want to keep the passion while redirecting it in ways that are less, uh, that are less angry, less likely to produce conflict and more likely to produce answers and some productive motion in the church, hopefully. So uh, second one, is there a free resource like an app or a website that has helped you lately that you would recommend for those in small church ministry? You know, the resource I would recommend the most is the podcast I'm a part of, the After Class podcast. Yeah, we'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes, yeah. We are three guys with PhDs, one in Old Testament, one in New Testament, one in theology that are just making critical issues in the church and the scriptures available at an accessible level. Outside of me, the, the resource I found outside the podcast, the resource I found most helpful is the works of Gerhard Lofink, who is a German scholar, and his works okay. are translated into English. And a lot of them are being translated into English and made available. He's got his finger on the heart of radical Christian community. learning from the way of Jesus. And so he has books like No Irrelevant Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He's got a book on parables, a book on the Lord's Prayer. He's not a reader lots of people go to or even know exists. Yeah, it's new to me too. You're referring to him in present tense. So is this a theologian currently writing now or is this a... Yes. Yep. Okay. All right. Great. And he's a good German scholar. So it's a little more academically minded, but it's written very accessibly. Good scholarship made available at a very popular level. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, we'll link that to that as well. Awesome. awesome. Uh, thirdly, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Yeah, and I think I got this from Stanley Harawas, who was uh, one of my mentor professors at Duke. And I believe uh, co-author of one of the, your books, if I remember yeah, from your... Yeah, he wrote an introduction or a preface. Oh, that's what it was. I, I knew I saw his yeah. name on the, on the cover, yeah. But one of the things he impressed upon me that's really stuck with me and made a huge difference is just that the gospel is a gift all the way down. (laughs) The gospel Mm. is a gift. And so this good news that we have, it isn't to bully people with, not to coerce people to accept. It's not something we can force upon another. It's always God's offer that people can either accept or reject. It's not our job to force them to accept. Our job is to make that gift available and to have the patience when people don't accept it not to recourse to coercion or bullying or (laughs) verbal onslaughts to kind of make people come around. It's got to stay a gift or else it's no longer gospel anymore. You mentioned that in endangered gospel as well. And it it is such a powerful point to make because the idea that the gospel is a gift, isn't something Harawas made up. It's seriously new Testament. I mean, it's repeated regularly (laughs) and a few of us have recognized the power and the importance of that. Like you just described. That's a great one. I love it. Last one, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? Yeah, I, our church is really committed to, I'm a part of a small church, about 80 members. Okay. We're really committed to serving one another in very practical ways. The funniest image in my head is uh, a friend went with me all the way to Pennsylvania from Lansing, Michigan to Pennsylvania to get a shed <laughs> to haul it back because there was such a great deal made on this Amish farm. We called the the shed making place and said, what kind of trailer do you need? And they said, well, an 18 foot trailer and, and this kind of truck will do the job. And so we showed up with an 18 foot trailer and they set that shed on the back of the thing. And in their mind, it's a, a trailer with two axles and plenty of wheels. And we just had one axle in the middle and we set that shed on top of that trailer. And it just the whole thing went to the ground. And I see all these Amish woodmakers, their draws have dropped and they can't believe that we're actually going to try to carry this thing from Pennsylvania to Lansing. But we, we were a spectacle to behold for uh, <laughs> being 24 hour drive with many unexpected adventures along the way. We had members of the church family come meet us halfway to literally escort us down the road to save us from other people. And then but it was such a spectacle and to see the picture of this church family scrambling together to make possible this ridiculous mission. Uh, just a way we've tried to love each other and provide for each other very simple ways, doing crazy things awesome. uh, to try to serve each other in the Lord. So, yeah, come together as the body of Christ. Hey, uh, if anybody wants to follow up on this or connect with you, how can they find you? 
I have a website called johnnugent.net, and that's one way. And after class podcast, you can search for that using any podcast provider, and uh, you should be able to find us that way. And we'll link all of that in the show notes as well. I sure appreciate your being with us today. I, I love your book. I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to do any further talk on this. I think it goes to the heart of issues. If we can get this issue right, if we can understand what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God, which was his main talking point <laughs> that we yes. often miss, if we can understand that, it will help us to get all the other stuff right. So much else falls into place when we understand the kingdom of God. So thank you. Thank you so much for all of that and for your time today. Thank you, Carl. So can this work in a small church? Is there a way to help our congregations understand the principles of a kingdom-centered approach to ministry, both inside and outside the church walls? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. We need to do a couple things, though. It's yes if we, first of all, understand where the common misunderstandings about these issues come from so that we can address them lovingly and biblically. Secondly, we need to frame these issues according to the entire story arc of Scripture rather than just proof-texting things. And then finally, we need to see the church for what Jesus called us to be, not isolated from the world, but as a representation of the kingdom of God within the world. If you'd like to become a supporter of this ministry and help put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most, check out our support link in the show notes. Do you want a transcript of this episode? It will be available within a few days of the podcast air date at christianitytoday.com slash carlvaders. Find the link in the show notes. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver, edited by Phil Vaders. The original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The podcast logo was created by Solomon Joy of joyetic.com. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I'm a small church pastor.